It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. We have a dear old friend on the podcast today who is a previous guest, the inimitable Mr. Robert Cheek. And I want to start this episode off, Robert, by telling a tale about aging like a fine wine. No, I thought you were going to start this off by asking who's on the cover of his book. No, I want to talk about aging like a fine wine real quick. I, I, you said I, you, I have to, a transition and I'm going to talk about it quick. I need to know who's on the cover of Robert's All book. Right. Wh- Whitney's going to butt in skate. I can't wait. And I also have to say, is Robert our first repeat guest or did we have somebody not. else? Michelle Kane and to- Mich- Tony Akamoto has been a repeat guest. And Jason from Relationships and Relationships. Yep. So, Robert, you are one of three <laughs> repeat guests. You're in the trifecta, the holy trifecta of repeat guests. So before I get into the aging like a fine wine thing, Whitney, it's burning in Whitney's loins to know who is the cover model on your new book, Robert. Well, I hope I don't let you down. I don't have a clue. This is a uh, as a stock image that the uh, publisher chose, and we liked it. So um, we do have many female runners in the book and female athletes in the book. And so use your imagination. This could be Mary Schneider. It's not, but it could be. I mean, I immediately, my mind went to Dotsie, but then I'm like, that's not Dotsie sport. She's a cyclo. Oh, well, maybe, Do- I don't know. Anyway, just because we love Dotsie and I think she that was, was the on last our show. We- she was also on our show. So we love Dotsie. So shout out yeah. to Dotsie if she's listening. And she is also featured in the book. So that's exciting. Robert, so in the long history of knowing one another, a memory flashed in me uh, preparing for this episode this morning, which was, uh, and I know I've told you this in person. I don't think we ever talked about it publicly, but in person, I had known of you for like probably three, maybe three-ish years at this point. I was up in the the first time I ever visited Portland. This was the summer of uh, 2008. And I was hanging out with uh, my dear friend, Erica, and she's like, oh, we're going to go eat at all the vegan places and go get vegan tattoos and get piercings and like do all the vegan things and like, you know, all the vegan Pacific Northwest things. She's like, we're going to go to this place called the Red and Black Cafe. I'm like, all right, let's go to the Red and Black Cafe. Walk into the cafe and you are sitting at this table commanding everyone's attention like the prince of edamame. You're just there wowing everyone. Everyone's just focused on you. And I'm like, oh, oh crap, that's Robert Cheek. She's like, who's Robert Cheek? I'm like, you don't know who Robert Cheek is. He's like the person who invented vegan bodybuilding. And I'm freaking out because I'm just like some scrawny kid from Detroit who was like fanboying on you. And I was like, scared as hell to come up to you and say anything because i'm just like he's not gonna give a crap about me he's with all his friends he's gonna be like who's this weird stalker from la so i was the first time ever seeing you i was reticent to even engage because i was so like at that point you were just like this and i mean this you were like this mythological figure i was like who before i came to know you robert i didn't even know that bodybuilding as a vegan was possible so i look back on this aging like a fine wine Back in 2008, because I laugh because we're we're such good friends now. I was scared as hell to even talk to you. And I also want to say neither of us had beards at that point. And I just want to go on record to say 
seeing us both go from clean shaven, Robert, kudos on the beard, kudos on aging like a fine wine. And here we are all these years later. So I just wanted to give that shout out because, dude, I've just been such a huge fan of your work for so, so long. Well, thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. You saw me as a Portland minotaur, uh, mythical creature with a long tail. And uh, that was a place that I had a, a lot of great memories. Portland, Oregon was a fantastic place to be and to really help be part of that growth of the vegan movement in those early days. So thank you for that reference. And it's been great uh, hanging out with you ever since. I'm trying to think of the first time I found out who you were, Robert, because part of our history is Twitter. Did we meet through Twitter? We did. Or did we, we like meet through? Because both of you actually have something in common. Both of you I've, I've dated and both of you, there's like a history of being together at the Natural Products Expo. So I think and both of you, like I would see you separately it wasn't like at the same show i was going back and forth between the two of you um, but i uh i remember like the days before we dated knew, and knew each other well seeing you at the expo is that how i met you robert through the natural products expo no we met through twitter first we met through twitter first and then agreed to meet up at expo west so we met up. Actually, I believe the first time I met you was with Christy Morgan. Does that ring a bell? Yes. And Christy Morgan, I also met through Twitter. So you two were a huge part of my Twitter experience, which I, I think I joined Twitter in 2009, but got really into it at the end of 2009 and beginning of 2010. Yes. Yes. And so that's when you and I connected either in 2000, well, online in 2009 and in person, it had to have been Oh, nine too, because you were at my 30th birthday party in Los Angeles, which was March of 2010. So that would have been, I guess, right after Expo, right around Expo time. And Jason, you know, a lot of connections being made here. That's when I first met Aisha, aka Kitten, and Damon. And Kitten was just on our show recently, Robert. So there's a lot of connections that were made around that time. Who else yeah. was there? That was before Forks Over Knives or was or Forks Over Knives already out at that point? No, no, it wasn't out yet. That's I was just talking to Brian Wendell a week ago about that, about how he was saying the same thing. He met so many people at that birthday party, which was put on by Prabhat. Remember? Prabhat put on this birthday party, which had like so many people there. Like Annie Peel was there and Brendan Brazier was there. Julie Morris was there. Tanya Kay, uh, you, you were there. Claire was there. Uh, Our Mighty May was there. Like- a whole bunch of people like Prabhat put this thing on, like 30 people were there and it was really cool because, you know, a bunch of us became friends, including, I think that's where Brian said he met Almighty and a lot of people kind of met at that event that night. And uh, wow. it, I have a photo of that event, which you probably do too. I have a number yeah. of photos because I remember yeah. I was like really into photography back then. So in the show notes for this episode, for the listener and for Robert, if you want to go down memory lane, if you go to wellevator.com, our website, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, and click on the podcast section, there's a whole transcript. You'll find the YouTube video if you're not already watching that. You'll find links to everything we mentioned, including Robert's new book. And you'll see some visuals, the photos of the 2010 era Natural Products Expo and your party and, and your first book tour. I think we did this when you were last on the show too, Robert. We included links to the good old old school YouTube videos of us going around, which, you know, started this. I mean, it's actually so cool to me to have been able to know you for so long, over 10 years. You were a big part of my 
experience on social media too, which is something we talk a lot about. We talked about the last time you were on the show and how each of us have seen veganism develop and social media develop and created these bonds with people that went on to do really big things in the movement, in the vegan movement. Some people, you know, kind of drifted away. New people have come in. And I know this is something that you reflect a lot on, as do we, Robert. And I want to pick up on the subject that we we addressed in the last episode, which, by the way, for the listener, if you haven't listened to that episode, please do after this one or pause here. Listen to that as like our part one. Because I'm curious, Robert, when we met up with you, I think that was right before COVID because we did it in person. We recorded yes, with you yep. at the hotel. Yep. It was so I think that was January 2020. Yeah. Yep. And first of all, I mean, it's definitely a whole new world since then, about a year and a half later that we're recording this. Were you working on your book at that point? I can't remember. Yeah, I was. I've been working on this book, The Plant-Based Athlete, since 2018. And really, I actually started it back in 2013, which is a whole other story. I had an agent. I pitched it to a publisher. It almost got picked up. And in a strange turn of events, you know, they said I wasn't really ready for the moment. I wasn't uh, the person to write the book. I needed to hire a professional writer, all these things. And so I wrote the book Shred It to be like this 60-page ebook to help fund a hired writer. And as it turns out, that turned out to be like a 400-page book. And I just self-published it and it went on to sell a lot of copies. And then a year or two later, uh, my now co-author, Matt Frazier, got published by the same publisher who almost took on the plant-based athlete book, but didn't. And so he published the No Meat Athlete Cookbook. And then I self-published Plant-Based Muscle, which I see in the background there. Uh, I self-published that afterwards. And then I met with Brian Wendell, actually, who's played a huge role in my life. Uh, I used to work for him at Forks Over Knives. And he was there, like you said, I used to watch some previews early cuts of Forks Over Knives before it was done. And he was there at my birthday when I first moved to LA and trying to find my way in the big city. And and we had dinner in 2018 and he put me in touch with his agent who then I connected with and started this whole process with the plant-based athlete. And then once again, the agent said, this was a different agent who said, you're not doing this on your own. You need somebody else. And that's when I flew across the country to the East Coast and I met with Matt Frazier, presented this idea to him, said, what do you think? You want to do this together? And he said, absolutely. And then we've been working on it ever since. So all of 2019, all of 2020, and it's it's finally out now. And it's been the biggest project of my life. It's been incredible. It's just, it's such an exciting time to finally have this out, especially knowing the backstory that it's it's taken like eight years for this particular book title, the exact same title and concept I had in 2013. But really, I like to say it's been a lifetime in the making. I've wanted to be a, a mainstream author since I was in third grade, since eight years old. And so I just remind people that sometimes dreams take a long time. You know, they might take 33 years. They take a while to be achieved. And and all those steps, Whitney, were part of that. Like all those things along the way, meeting people, those connections made 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, two years ago, all of those are connecting the dots that lead to this moment. And it reminds me, Whitney, like you were talking about some of those historical uh, things that we've done, like that red carpet Earth Day event with James Cameron. That's where I first met John Sally. That's where I first met James Cameron. That's where I first met uh, all these different people there, Michelle Rodriguez or these other actors and actresses. And I've kept in touch with John Sally ever since. And and he's, you know, he's someone I really, really like in the movement. And you know, you and I met Biz Stone, who co-founded Twitter, like he like co-created Twitter, right? You and I met 
biz along the way on our journey, you know, on tour. And Whitney, you were with me when I bought my car that I would travel around the country with for a decade, selling, like literally selling books out of my car and sleeping in my car and just trying to make it, trying to make it, trying to make it. And then the next thing I know, in, just in the last couple of weeks, you know, I've been on the Rich Roll podcast. I've been on a whole bunch of other podcasts and, and filming with Mike the Vegan and Chef AJ. And we're talking about major TV stuff now and TV and national TV and radio and all this stuff and podcast here with you guys. And uh, it's a lot different than driving around in my car with a self-published book, like to have a book in every bookstore in America and translation. In- and that's Speaking of America, Robert, like a lot of what you're describing sounds like a bit of the American dream plus the hero's journey in a lot of ways. And I want to approach this from two different angles because part of what you're describing here is kind of the hero's journey, which is like you have a dream, you have like an aim, and you have to go through all of this trial and tribulation and obstacles and like you get to the other side. So I'm curious, A, do you feel like you're on the other side or do you feel like you're still on that journey getting there? Because I think one thing that comes up a lot on the show is how a lot of people get to this point where they feel like, oh, when I get here, I'll have made it. And each of us, the three of us, and and perhaps some of our listeners have had that experience of, oh, I've made it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. Or, oh my gosh, I've almost made it. And something is just out of reach. And then something shifts and you don't get it. Things change and maybe you don't want it anymore. Or you get it and realize this isn't the end. This isn't like a place I'm going to stop at. There's another hill to climb or that you want to climb. Or sometimes we start going downhill and almost feel like we have to start all over again. And Robert, I think you touched upon this the previous time you were on this show. I'm curious how you're feeling now with this big accomplishment with this book and looking back over your career and how much has shifted. Because when I met you, Robert, like social media was really in its infancy. Because at that time, Facebook and Twitter were like the be-all, end-all platforms. Maybe we still had MySpace. Blogging was really big back then. And you've said it was like being a big fish in a small pond, especially as vegans. Like To Jason's point, you were known as a vegan bodybuilder. When people talked about bodybuilding as a possibility for vegans, it was you. That's how I thought of you for so long. And then over the years, when documentaries like Forks Over Knives came out, it was like this whole wave of new people coming out. YouTube rose. And I too was a big fish in a small vegan pond for a while, back with like Durian Rider and Freely. I was in the top 10 with views and subscribers. And like, there just weren't that many people doing what I was doing. Now I'm like the tiniest fish in the YouTube vegan scene, you know? And it's interesting, like how the waves kind of shift and how like you can have something and then feel like you've lost it or it's shifted and then you want something else. So for you, Robert, I'm curious, like, how are you feeling amongst all of that? What's your current perspective as your career has evolved and what has changed for you in the past year since we last spoke with you on the show? Yeah, thanks, Whitney. That's actually a lot to think about. And and I know our previous episode was quite an emotional one. It was the, you know, the most I've cried during a podcast ever or an interview ever because it was really emotionally driven, the, the topics that we talked about. And there's been, like you said, there's been a tremendous amount of struggle. And I say that realizing that I come from a privileged background. You know, I, I you know, I'm a white male growing up in America with college educated parents and, and all of that. But in the 
whatever you want to call it, the entrepreneurial world, the like what you referenced, the American dream or trying to make it or, or having goals and actually having the audacity to believe that you can achieve them. That has been a fantastic struggle. And, and really, I equate whatever you want to call success or achievement or whatever we've done with this book is because of the countless, countless times that I failed and failed, you know, enthusiastically sometimes, like dramatically failed. I'm talking like, you know, no money, sleeping in my car, uh, not knowing where to go, having to, you know, call family, you know, send some money so I can get some gas to get to the next town, to stay with a friend, to, you know, showing up at Food Not Bombs where I was a kid serving food for homeless and people in need or anyone who was hungry in the park. And then, you know, 10 years later, I was lining up for some food in Portland, Oregon to get some free food from Food Not Bombs because I was out of money and I couldn't buy food. And these were all sacrifices because I would invest in to trying to self-publish books and just trying to realize this dream. Like, I want to be an author. This means something to me. It's an identity that's that's going to change my life and it gives me purpose. It gives me meaning. It gives me hope. It gives me fulfillment. It's like, it's who I am, or at least it's who I want to be. And maybe it's not how you see me or how someone else sees me, but it's how I want to see myself or how I want to be viewed. And so it's been one roadblock after another. And I, I mean, even just talking about this current book, I mean, I've already mentioned just very briefly, I was turned down by publishers. I was turned down by agents. I was told over and over, I, I'm not good enough. I'm not the person to write this book. I'm not famous en enough. I'm not, I don't have enough followers. I don't have the reputation. I need a co-author. I need a professional writer. I need an agent. I need all these things because Robert, you can't do this on your own. You're not good enough. I took every single one of those. I took those to heart. I And some of those were really real. They were accurate. They were fair assessments of who I was and where I was at the time. And I had to come to terms with that, be okay with that, allow it not to affect my own ego or my, or my own dreams that I still wanted to pursue and just keep going anyway. And so I did. And as far as like, do I feel like I've reached some sort of, you know, level of accomplishment or something? Really, I mean, the honest answer is not even close. And I don't I don't say that from like this, also this ego perspective that I'm never satisfied and I'm always hungry and you got to keep grinding and you got to keep, you know, always something next, bigger, better, all this stuff. Like it reminds me, I just texted my childhood friends, you know, I mean, kids I grew up with and I sent them a screenshot, you know, I've written the number one, the number one best-selling vegan diet book in America, the number one best-selling sports psychology book in America, one of the top 10 exercise, fitness and nutrition books in America landed publishing deals in the US, Canada, Germany, Taiwan, all before the book has even come out. And my friend said, what's next? <laughs> you know, but what's next? Because he's watched me for like 30, you know, whatever it's been, you know, 30 something years, always trying to be something different. You know, the world's most recognized vegan bodybuilder, one of the most prolific self-published authors in America, signing a major six-figure book deal, all expenses paid trips to speak in China, Australia, England, all over Canada, the Caribbean, the US, these exotic places. And and I just thought that question was apropos. It was just, he just knows me well enough that Robert is not, he's just not going to stop. He's, but also in a way that he was like expressing care for me because he knows I put it all on the line and that, you know, can Robert handle this? Uh, if he's never satisfied, there's always something bigger to achieve. There's always something next then what is that next thing? Is Robert ever going to slow down and be more present perhaps with family and friends and in his environment? You know, I suspect that's one thing that my friend was suggesting who's known me all these years. So as I reflect on where I'm at now, you know, I'm just, I'm just grateful. You know, gratitude is the number one thing that comes to mind. 
and I posted something recently, a, a quote online. It was it was a great quote from Mister Rogers, you know, the great Fred Rogers, who you know who, who was always a big fan of recognizing people who helped us along our way, people who who helped us along our journey and under, just understanding. Uh, and that's what I was expressing as I do have one of the best selling books in America right now. Uh, just expressing that gratitude, knowing that I didn't get here on my own. I had help every step of the way, including from both of you. You've both endorsed my book. You've helped me ship books. You've taken me on tour. You've put me on your podcast. You've put me on your YouTube channels. That's, I mean, everybody, you know, it's not just my parents and the people that I list and the acknowledgements in my books, people who have employed me or given me, you know, pats on the back when I needed them or given me an opportunity or a platform, but it's, it's really all of the interactions along the way. Like everybody plays a role in that. And to just kind of pause and recognize that. And as Fred Rogers says, you know, take a moment of silence and like, you know, just like, just acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of important people in your life. And so, you know, I think about that, you know, like, like when I was struggling, you know, or, or you know, stranded somewhere or like, you know, or like tempted to give up, you know, like who were those people that said, keep going, man, like, keep going. Like, like you got this, you know, like, like, you know, you're out there telling everyone else to believe in themselves. You got to do it too. So, so I think about that. So I've got a long way to go. You know, we're going to achieve a lot of things with this book and hopefully it's going to make a big impact on a lot of people's lives. And really it's so inspirational and aspirational. Like that's the thing with this book. It's the stories, the overcoming adversity, not just, you know, my brief story that's in the book, but it's the athlete stories that are in the book, you know? that overcame so many things in their lives to be champion plant-based athletes. It's amazing. And so I'm just grateful. I'm along for the ride. I'm having fun, which is hard to do sometimes because it's, it's long days and late nights and a tremendous amount of work. It really is like, I think more than most people know to have a book at this level of acceptance by the mainstream media. It's a lot of work, but I'm enjoying it the best that I can. And I think when it reaches whatever peak it's going to reach, you know, we're not slowing down and until it's unequivocally a New York Times bestseller and all these great things, uh, because we know the impact that it's going to have on people, you know, then I'll, you know, I'll take a step back a little bit and then I could answer my friend's question. What's next? Robert, this brings up so much. And again, I just want to, I want to thank you for your transparency and in, in sharing your process and in, in your inner world with us, you know, because I think that in the mainstream media, a lot of the discussion around entrepreneurship and success is you know, it shows people's highlight reels. We've talked about this a lot, even offline, the three of us. And I love that you're talking about like, yo, it's not easy, you know, on the level and the aim of what you guys are hoping to do and, and the peak that you hope this book reaches. I'm glad you're sharing the struggle, the holy struggle, the glorious struggle, as people call it. And on those nights when you just feel like you want to collapse in a heap, and I'm sure there are many nights like this, right? You and I have texted offline about just how much work this is. What is it that keeps you going specifically. We talk a lot about answering the question why. It's Whitney's favorite question. I'm warming up to it. I'm getting better with why. But especially, Robert, on those nights when you just don't know how the heck you're going to keep going, where do you pull the energy from? Like, where does it come from for you? Where do you find the will and the stamina to keep going? What is that for you? Where is that wellspring for you? That's a great question, Jason. And it's, it's connecting the dots for me. I've been connecting the dots my entire life. And I've had this incredible ability. I don't know where it comes from. I may have talked about it in the last episode too, of being able to connect the dots in the future. Like I see them ahead of time. So, you know, when I was in third grade and wanted to be a writer, I knew I had to take action to do that. So I started writing books in the third grade, eight years old, spiral bound, laminated. I wrote books. 
And then I knew I needed to advance. So I had a writing coach, like a one-on-one writing coach in high school. You know, when most people, 17 year olds are out, you know, hanging out and doing whatever they're doing. I was writing a hundred page book uh, and had a coach that would meet with me two or three days a week and work with me. And I signed up for writing classes like at community college immediately after high school because I was still trying to find my way and I wasn't really, I, you know, I didn't have a career in mind other than wanting to be a writer or a pro wrestler. And so I did that kind of stuff where I was like, you know, well, it was kind of funny, actually, kind of <laughs> side story. I showed up to this uh, <laughs> this community college writing class and it was about how to write your autobiography. And I showed up and they're like, oh, excuse me, sir, the the math class is like the next room because everybody was like 60 or 70 years old. And I was like 18 showing up and I'm like, oh, no, this is, I'm in the right place. I didn't realize it was like, I guess I didn't make the connection that it was the, you know, like your autobiography, like towards the end of your life, that a lot of people were learning how to write that so they could tell their story. And here I was 18 years old, but I just wanted to learn how to write better. <laughs> so I did, so I did that. So it turned out I was in the right place for me because I wanted to learn how to write better. And so Jason, what keeps me going is that, you know, I, I am able to connect the dots and I could just, I see what's ahead of in the future. So, you know, the, the simple question, the simple answer uh, excuse me, is that if this book, if and when, and <laughs> when it hits a home run, it opens the door for another big book. They're easily, you know, some sort of cookbook, you know, something like that, you know, plant-based athlete cookbook or whatever the case is. And it could be this three book series, this four book series, you know, plant-based athlete success stories, you know, an expanded version with years down the road of now big time athletes in there, big time NBA, WNBA, NFL, NHL, soccer, tennis stars, and all that. And we do have a bunch of, you know, of great athletes in our current book and big names like Rich Roll and Scott Jurek and James Wilkes and Rip Esselstyn and Fiona Oaks and all that. But, you know, I'm picturing what the next project is and what the next project is after that. And I realized that for me, at least, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to anyone else, but for me, I see there's there's little point in writing another <laughs> vegan fitness book. This is like my fourth or fifth one now, unless this is the one, unless this is the book that just soars and is the the unequivocal leader, like the new standard bearer. And I mean, with a, a co-author in Matt Fraser, a foreword from Dr. Michael Greger, endorsements from T. Colin Campbell and John Robbins and Brenda Davis, and the inclusion of 50 or 60 world-class plant-based athletes. I've already named some of them and there's many more. This is that book. Like this is the book to be totally mainstream. Like, I mean, this is almost like, in a way, it's kind of like the game changers in literature format. In fact, it does feature some people from the Game Changers, Dotsie Bausch, uh, James Wilkes, Scott Jurek, and Rip Esselstyn, and then 50 other amazing plant-based athletes like Vanessa Espinosa, Jahina Malik, Laura Klein, Darcy Gaither, all these incredible athletes that I'm excited for people to learn about. And so for me, those days come often, Jason. I had one of those days yesterday. I was texting with my good friends, Danny and Giacomo, who I got a card in the mail, like congratulating me on the book success. That was the only piece of mail that came. And I <laughs> I really needed it yesterday. I was like, I was losing it yesterday. Like just the, the pressure, you know, like the expectation is, is, is tough. And the workload is just, you know, I, I go to bed like at 2 a.m. just because I'm exhausted. Because if I don't complete the next interview, if I don't do the right kind of marketing, if I don't connect with the right people, you know, the hundreds, like literally hundreds of influencers that took me months to connect with who are going to get it, you know, who got advanced copies and are going to promote it, you know, promote the book organically on their platforms and spread the word and all that. I don't want to wonder what might have been had I done that. 
you know, if we'd missed the New York Times bestseller list by like 100 copies, like, I don't want that to happen because that title, and maybe it's just a material thing or superficial thing, but for me, it's meaningful, you know, because it's been a quest, a journey my entire life. And that title after your name, or after, in this case, after my name, New York Times bestselling author will be with me forever. That will forever be with me. And it's something, you know, that can't be taken away. It's, it's something that opens up doors, not only for my next projects, but for other people to pursue work in this space, whether that's books or magazines or TV or documentaries, films, it shows that the plant-based athlete lifestyle is here to stay. It's grown up now. It's matured. It's a far cry from those early days, Whitney driving around, you know, and speaking to small audiences or, or selling, you know, small amounts of books and going to these small towns and all that. It's something that is now embraced not only nationally here in the US, but like I said, we've landed book deals all over the world before the book is even out. This is what I've been working toward, Jason, my entire life. I became vegan on December 8th, 1995, because I wanted to make a difference in the world around me. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference in the world around me. And back then that was the farm animals. And Whitney's been in my house. She's seen where I grew up. Uh, she's seen you know the cows in the fields and and the, the ducks and geese and all of that. And I wanted to make a difference in the lives of those individuals. And as a 15-year-old, I realized that, man, if I, could, if I could build muscle without eating animal protein, I might be able to inspire other people to do the same. And it'll make a difference in their world. You know, They'll be able to make a difference in the world around them, which is their community, their friends, their family, the, you know, the animals and, that are near them. And I've never lost sight of that. And that's the truth. That's the truth. And that's you, really important, Robert, because I have to take a step back and think like, have I lost sight of it? And have others in the influential space of veganism lost sight of it? Because, you know, one thing we talked about on the previous episode with you is always worth coming back around to is the state of social media and the ego involved and how when we get so wrapped up in our own ego, we lose sight of how it impacts other people for better or for worse. You know, and actually earlier today, when Jason and I were recording another episode, I was looking at some data around how social media causes so much mental distress simply because of the comparison trap. And so the comparisons can work in our favor. We can aspire to be like people. We can learn from other people. We can feel motivated by other people. But the opposite can happen too, where we feel depressed because we're not, we perceive other people to be, whether it's their physical shape or their success monetarily or their fame or these other markers. And I know that's impacted each of us in a lot of different ways. We can get into this place of like, oh, I'm not as big as this person, so why even bother? Or and it that takes us away from the reason that we we all started. You know, I think in transparency for me, and I think Jason, I'm not sure about you, Robert, but there is like that part of me that has certainly been drawn to fame and fortune for most of my life, right? And I see this happening so much on social media these days of people using veganism and using fitness as a way to get validation, fame, and fortune. And it's concerning because that it's like that ego trap where we can each get spiral pulled into it and drawn to the desire to make more money, to get more attention. But it's short-lived, you know, like it could be just as we were saying before, like you can be the big fish and then later the small fish or vice versa. 
And Jason, I'm curious like how this is resonating with you as you're listening to Robert, if those thoughts are coming up for you too. And then Robert, where you're standing these days with the whole world of social media, especially since you're so, it's such a, a big role. Marketing is a huge part of where you're at right now with your career. To your point, you don't want to stop and wonder what if, but at what expense? Because we talked about it in the last episode, the anxiety that you felt and the challenges you've had with public speaking because it takes such a big hold on you. Before we get to that, I'm curious, Jason, what has been crossing through your mind? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, the point you brought up, Robert, about having this dream of of being an author, it's something that I dreamed about as a young man too. I started reading at a really young age and I would actually bring my favorite books to bed with me like they were stuffed animals. That's how obsessed I was as a kid. I was just obsessed with books. And when you talk about the great success that you've had in this new book and it's all over the world and you know, you brought up the whole idea of wanting to be a New York Times bestseller, right? And th- this goal. And I had the exact same goal, right? And I remember putting everything I had into my first book, Eternity, right? I was so determined to hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I remember when I didn't make it, right? And found out, it's so interesting you talk about, like you want to know that that in your heart, you did everything you could, right? And I can relate to that feeling because when the sales, when the, the unit statistics came out, I realized that I had missed the list by like only a few hundred copies. Doesn't matter right? Like no one's going to be like, oh, bro, you almost like there's no gold medal for almost making it right. And that was such an ego battle for me because it was like, I did everything in my power that I felt I could do and I didn't make it. But what I realized a gift of that for me was, and this is a question I want to bounce to you, Robert, because we talk about athletes, right? When I was an athlete as well, I always felt motivated by having a chip on my shoulder. I've walked through my life with some form of a chip on my shoulder, like F you, you don't believe I can do it. I'm going to show you I can do it. Not just show you I can do it, but do it better than anyone else. Like that has motivated me in sometimes toxic ways throughout my life. So, you know, bouncing this back to you and we, you know, we've been talking about motivation here and, and dreams. You and I are both huge basketball fans. We love basketball. We love us some Chris Paul. We love us some Russell Westbrook. Like Russ is one of those dudes. I love Russ as a basketball player because he plays like he is angry. And you know that guy's got a chip on his shoulder. So I bounce this back to you, Robert, asking if you relate to that motivation and if it has served you in healthy ways or maybe some unhealthy ways if you resonate with having a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, Jason, I'm really glad you brought that up because I spent most of my life, most of my adult life feeling that way, that I was always overlooked, underappreciated. I'm going to show you. I even remember even back when I was 21 years old, like my <laughs> my theme song was Toby Keith's How Do You Like Me Now? You know, like, how do you like me now? Because you didn't give me a shot. You didn't believe in me. You didn't trust me. I'm going to show you. And I had that attitude in my vegan bodybuilding and fitness book. I had it in some other books that I've written. And it's only been in recent years that I've actually taken a a, a different approach that I don't know that I want to have a chip on my shoulder. Like, who cares if it motivates me? Like, it's in a way, it's a negative space. I'm glad you actually followed up with the fact that it's been toxic for you in some cases, because I didn't want to completely like contradict you, even though that's okay, too, if we have completely different opinions and completely different approaches. But I did want to express my own authentic approach, which is that in my experience in recent years, it has not served me well to have a chip on my shoulder. And so what you know what I'm doing now, Jason, and this is the 
you know, the goddamn honest truth, and I've already said it a couple of times already on this interview with both of you right now, is that I'm expressing gratitude. You know, I'm reaching out to my childhood friends. I'm in touch with my third grade teacher who encouraged me to be a writer. I've got my uh, my fourth and fifth grade teacher's address right there to send a book to, sign a book and send to tomorrow. Like, I'm grateful, you know? I don't need to have a chip anymore. I don't have to have a chip on my shoulder. And like, yeah, I, I was the small kid who became vegan and then wanted to be a bodybuilder and pro wrestler and all this stuff. And I eventually became a champion bodybuilder. And I eventually became this speaker that was on a global tour, essentially, and all of this stuff and wrote a bunch of books. But I don't have to do that now, or I don't feel the need to say, I told you so. Uh, in fact, if I have any part of that attitude, it's really asking the question of, and for me, it's fun to ask maybe that of my childhood friends. Did you guys ever, like, did you see this? Did you picture this, that someday I'd be doing this? And for some of them, like they said, yeah, like we, we, we knew, <laughs> you know, like we knew that you would be doing this someday and we're proud of you. And that's what I really feel. I don't feel like I need to prove anything because I spent my entire life trying to do that. And it actually reminds me of a quote from, from Jake the Snake Roberts in the documentary Beyond the Mat, which I highly recommend people watch. It's from the 90s, I believe, I think the late 90s, where he was trying to, and I hope I didn't reference this in our last interview. I've only referenced it once or twice ever, really. But he was trying, he basically was trying to win the love of his father. And his father was a pro wrestler. And so he wanted to be better than his father at what his father did. And so Jake the Snake Roberts went on to be this super famous wrestler wrestling in front of 80,000 live fans and millions around the world watching on TV. And he said, you know what? I did it. And you know what? It didn't matter. You know, I, I was better than my dad in his sport and it didn't matter. And I actually had that because I watched that film when I was a teenager and I was a big fan of pro wrestling back then. And my father has written 15 books. You know, he's, he's an animal scientist and has written 15 textbooks, uh, mostly about raising animals for food. And he toured all over the world. And he was really, to be fair, one of my initial, if not the initial inspiration for me to want to be a writer. And of course, my message is a complete juxtaposition, completely counter to his. And I said, man, I'm going to do this better than him. I'm going to do it and I'm going to earn his respect and appreciation. And I don't know that it's mattered. I've sold more books than he ever will, ever in history. But I don't know that it matters because it's my journey. I'm sure he's happy. I'm sure he's proud. He, he says he loves the new book. He got right to work reading it and is impressed by it. And it's hard cover and it's you know fancy. It's shiny cover and published by HarperCollins, the world's second largest publisher and global distribution and all that. But to put that much worry and burden and stress that I need to do this to prove something to somebody else to try to get their approval or their appreciation or their love or their respect, like I can't anymore. And I actually, I wrote a couple of notes down as you were talking, Jason, about you were this close to being a New York Times bestseller and I'm knocking on that door myself. And who knows, by the time this airs, I might be, that might be already established. But it's also just a title, right? It's like being a millionaire. Everybody wants to be a millionaire. You know, we all packed up from Massachusetts, Michigan, and Oregon to go to Los Angeles to be somebody, right? That's the truth for all of us. We wanted to make it, we wanted to be somebody. And I think being a New York Times bestseller is thrown around like being a millionaire. When you actually look at it, like you were talking, Jason, the metrics and what it takes and the effort and giving every, you know, every ounce of everything that you have, it's tough. It's tough. You know, if you're not famous, if you're not super well connected, if you're not on TV all the time, it's, it's tough to be there. Just like everyone's, not everybody, but so many people say, I'm going to be a millionaire someday. Like, do you understand the metrics in that? Okay, break that down. How much money do you have to make per month? You know, nearly a hundred grand, a hundred grand per month. It's tough, but 
but it's something that, you know, it's not like you, it's not going to be the end of the world if I don't secure that status, but man, it's worth fighting for it. You know, it's worth, it's worth going for it, especially when you've been grinding for 33 years saying that, you know, to myself and others that someday I will, someday I will. And, you know, it's, it's going to be nice to remove that, that someday, you know? Yeah. And what a beautiful way to phrase that, Robert. It's going to be nice to remove the sun uh, someday. It's, it is almost like a burden. And when I was saying how getting to a certain level, it doesn't mean that that's the end, but maybe that is just another layer that you can remove, which I haven't really thought about. It's not about like stopping the climb. It's like you get to shed a layer of clothing because you're higher enough up that you don't need it anymore. And I also found out you did reference the Jake the Snake quote in our last episode, Robert. So <laughs> I'm pleased hilarious. that <laughs> we're one of the few places you've referenced that in your life multiple times now. That is funny. I only recall telling that story two or three times ever. And it's probably just twice on your show. Wow. Something about talking about that, you know, the journey of success and proving ourselves and validation, which ties into what I was expressing earlier. And it's fascinating. You know, I was thinking just yesterday, and I almost made a video about this. Sometimes I'll just record one off videos for my YouTube channel. And I stopped myself because I wasn't sure if I felt like it was important for me to make it. But I was reflecting on how, to your point, Robert, like, and going back to this idea of the American dream, like, there's this mythology of anybody can get this. If you just do these things, and this is another thing that comes up over and over again on our show. I remember in our episode with Jason and Caroline Zook, two people that you would really resonate with, Robert, because they're coaches. And we were talking about how in the business world, much like what we're talking about on as media creators and vegan activists, is there's so many people doing it. And there's so many people saying, like, if you just do this, you'll get those results. And I think that's incredibly damaging to us, actually. You know, we've been part of the No Meat Athlete Bundle Sales, for example, which have been a wonderful experience. There's a lot of incredible people. But even in that, like sometimes they would show like the leaderboards. And I started to feel like, ugh, like I don't, going back to the comparison, like I don't want to compare myself to somebody else's success and see what is working for them because I would find myself looking at what they were doing and saying, well, I'm doing the same thing they're doing. Why am I not getting the same results? And then that would lead me to feel like something was wrong with me, that I must be the problem. If I can follow in somebody's footsteps and they're saying, hey, just do this, you'll get that. But when you do those things and you don't get that, you think, okay, well, if, if I did it properly. And if I, if those people got the results and like, clearly something's wrong with me. And I'm curious how you feel about that these days, Robert, because I know behind the scenes, like we've talked about how it can feel so frustrating, like the bundle sales, you know, we'll talk, we'll often talk about that, that experience of like what it's been like years after years. And like, we'll even compare ourselves to our previous progress too. You know, like it's not always about trying to beat others. Sometimes it's trying to beat yourself, like be better than you were the previous time. But what if you're worse than the previous time? Then that can be incredibly depressing. Yeah, I think this idea of being in constant state of improvement is really tough. And to your point, it may not be totally fair. You know, I, there was a time I was the world's most recognized vegan bodybuilder, like period. 
I was interviewed by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, on magazine covers. I was I was referenced around the world. I was really one of the only people known as a vegan bodybuilder back in the early 2000s. And I was I even put that on the cover of my first book, as you know, you know, under my name. It was World's Most Recognized Vegan Bodybuilder. That was a hell of a title to live up to. And so it's you can't always be constantly improving. I mean, you can try, you can aspire, you can strive for it, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And that's true with other areas of life. It could be relationships, it could be finances, it could be happiness, it could be fulfillment, it could be, you know, popularity or within your job and how you ascend the ladder or don't. And it's, I don't know that it's super productive or even fun to constantly compare you know, even if we say, and, and I've said these quotes many times, you know, that to only compare ourselves to our prior selves, or, you know, it's a motivational kind of idea that I've compared myself to who I was yesterday and all of that. But then that gives you this constant, this constant stress and burden to be better rather than to be present. And I think that's what's really missing is can we enjoy the moment? <laughs> can we pause for a moment and reflect and be happy? Like in this moment, in the moment that we're in right now, the three of us together, like, can we be happy? Or are we constantly worried about how this is going to turn out? Or what's the next interview I have to do? Or what's for dinner? Or what if this isn't very good? What if people don't like it? What if people don't like, uh, you know, my voice or they don't like my message or they don't buy my book and all this stuff? Well, who cares? Let's focus on the present. And I think that's really a message that people can take to heart because if this whole thing, whatever we're doing, I mean, why write books, Jason? Why create a podcast, Whitney? You know, why write books for you too, Whitney? Why travel around the world? Why move to Los Angeles and try to make it? We're all in this constant pursuit of happiness. Like we are, we're trying to be happy. We're doing whatever we can to be happy. And we think that living in a certain place or making a certain amount of money or having celebrity friends or having like accomplishments attached to our name. Look, I'm a writer. Look, I'm a speaker. Look, I'm a champion athlete, or I'm a CEO, I'm an entrepreneur, whatever. If we're all trying to be happy, which I think should be the ultimate goal, then we should do the things that make us happy. And I need those reminders as much as anybody, you know, including going through this process that I'm in right now of, yeah, Whitney, there's a lot of people who are, you know, a lot more popular than I am in the vegan bodybuilding world that have the blue check marks on Instagram and have way more followers and their followers have never even heard of me. They don't even know who I am. And that's okay. And actually, one of the lessons, I meant to bring this up earlier when we touched on this topic of ego and social media and pressure and stress and comparing to one another. One of the things that I really want to show, if I can, is that you can achieve levels of success that are admirable. Let's say you make bestseller lists or you, you achieve these things that are tangible and that you can measure without having all of that, without obsessing about the big following on social media. You can call upon your relationships with other people. The, I work with over a hundred different companies with Vegan Strong and with Vegan Bodybuilding, over a hundred companies that I work with. I have hundreds of colleagues from like Dr. Campbell and Dr. Greger and Dr. Esselstyn and you know, to Forks Over Knives and Game Changers and people around the world. And a newsletter list that I've been building for years that I write almost like in a blog style or conversational email style on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be how many people follow you on Instagram. In fact, people, there are massively popular people on Instagram or, or Twitter or TikTok who could never get a big book deal. It wouldn't happen for them because you have to have so many other components. First, you have to be able to write or hire a writer and have the means to do that. You have to have the creative concepts and you have to have the relationships built in and you have to have the work ethic to see it through. You have to have the marketing strategy and all of that. 
and that's one thing I've been thinking about recently. I mean, you you look at my my personal Instagram page. I mean, come on, twelve thousand followers, and this guy has the number one best selling vegan diet book in America. And you could say, well, what about your co author? He doesn't even have a personal page. Matt Frazier doesn't even have a personal Instagram page. And he has somebody else run the No Meat Athlete page, which gets less engagement than mine. It's not about that. It's about the relationships that we've built all along the way. Every trip I've taken, every tour I've taken, 10 consecutive years speaking on the vegan cruise, putting myself on a college campus speaking tour for years, speaking at all the major vegan festivals, going outside the vegan world and and interacting with the motivational crowd, the self-help and personal development crowd, the non-vegan athlete crowd, you know, the mainstream bodybuilding and fitness culture crowd. Jason's come to see me do my thing with 60,000 people out there at the LA Fit Expo and hundreds attending our talks. I know I've seen you there. We've taken photos together. You've seen us with thousands of people come by our booth. It's that stuff. It's not just being behind a computer and and posting or behind our phone and posting our most flattering photos. Although I had some nice ones I posted last night, flexing after the gym, you know, it looked good, but that's just part of it, right? There's all the stuff behind the scenes that are so much more than often what I consider kind of the ego focused of social media, where it's, uh, it's cliche to even say that it's a highlight reel of our lives, but it's the all the other things that go into making a project, any project, do well. Not just a book, but any project. You've got to have that foundation. I even wrote an entire ebook about that, about how to build a successful vegan brand. I don't know how to really build a company. I'm not a business guy, but I can really grow brands and work with a lot of brands. One last thing I wanted to say, Whitney, it came up, who knows, maybe 20 minutes ago. Uh, you were talking about maybe some people lost their way or the, the, you know they almost leveraging veganism to grow their own popularity. And it reminds me of a quote that Brian Wendell said in our Forks Over Knives office 10 years ago when he was being criticized a little bit because his film was health focused. And he said, you know, animals don't care why you stop eating them. They just care that you stop. And so if there, if there are some people that leverage veganism to raise their own reputation and to get popular and all this stuff, but it leads to people eating fewer animals, I'm okay with that. I don't have to have a battle with someone else and say, you know, I was here first. You know, I was the original guy. Look at all the books I've written, all this stuff, because it doesn't matter. That was back then. This is now. And whatever people can do, whatever that is, come to a plant-based diet for health reasons. I don't care. You know, come here for moral, ethical, animal rights reasons. Great. Come here because it's part of a challenge or you want to try something different or you want to change your life in some sort of way. And you've heard this might be a good way to go. Fair enough. But animals don't care why you stop eating them. They just care that you stop. And I know I grew up on a farm for 20 years. I know what it's like to be around farm animals. I know what it's like to see some of them get a second chance. And that's meaningful to me. And so I don't worry about what other people are doing. It's a different environment now. It's a completely different landscape. You've both been doing this long enough to know that it was a small crowd. You know, the vegan community was small and we all had very similar principles and morals and values. We were in it. We were in it to make a difference. And this was this was back when there were only a few groups and organizations and they were all kind of concentrated on the, the similar efforts and goals and passions of reducing animal cruelty. And the approaches were all similar too. There was it was a lot of protests and boycotts and speaking out and not using these products and writing to your lawmakers and or writing to companies and trying then to get rid of animal testing. And if you if there was you know vivisection going on, research lab animal experiments taking place on chimpanzees or rabbits or other animals, you, you spoke out about it. You reached out to companies. You reached out to your local representatives. You did this stuff. And now, yeah, it's it's every single person has their own ebook or their own course or their own download this and, and make money off the way they look. That's just how it is now. 
You know, I mean, when was the last time you heard about people raiding a mink farm or something? It's, I mean, not that I'm not suggesting that or anything like that. I'm just saying it's just a different type of activism now. It's just a different type. And if it's done in the, in the Instagram fitness and beauty world, or if it's done in the cooking and chef and food preparation world, if it's done through eBooks and courses and classes and lectures and documentaries and books, you know, that's great. And I never want to really, uh, you know, question anyone's desire because we also don't know what other people are going through themselves. You might look at someone and say, wow, all this person cares about is how they look in a bikini or how they look in, you know, posing trunks and posting all their their photos of themselves and getting a lot of positive feedback and pats on the back and all this stuff. But maybe they've endured a lot of unhappiness in their life. And this is their moment. Give them their moment, you know? This is their moment to feel good about their place in the world. And that's okay. And, and just to acknowledge that we don't know what people are going through. We don't know what they're up against. And just trust that there's, you know, passion behind their purpose and, you know, purpose behind their actions and that they do make a difference in the world around them as well. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful perspective, Robert, is, is us not assuming and not knowing what people have struggled with, what they've overcome, what they've endured. You did say one thing that, that sparked something in me. I wanted to ask a question about when you said people making money off the way they look. It flashed on a moment when I was really young. I think I was probably 17 years old. I think I was a senior in high school. And I had been a track runner, cross country, uh, played hoops, right? But I wasn't, I mean, I was I was way more thin than even I am now. I mean, I think I was like six foot a buck 40. I mean, I was a string bean, right? And so I started going to the gym. There was a powerhouse gym in Detroit where one of my highlights, you talk about pro wrestling, was uh, walking to the gym one day and meeting Hulk Hogan and Randy Macho Man Savage, which was insane. That's a totally different story for another time. It was insane. But I only saw them there once. I think they were in town for like SummerSlam. But anyway, I digress. There was one guy at the gym. uh, His name was, I think it was Reggie. It's been so many decades now. But every single time I go into the gym, Reggie was there. Like that dude lived at Powerhouse Gym, right? And I remember feeling... You know, kind of like when I tried to meet you for the first time, like, oh, my God, how am I going to talk to this guy? I'm you know, some skinny 140 pound kid trying to gain weight, gain muscle. Anyway, I finally got the courage like, hey, man, I just and by the way, Reggie was the biggest, most ripped guy. I mean, the dude was just Herculean, right? So I'm like, I want to go talk to the biggest, strongest, most aesthetically pleasing dude at the gym and ask him, what does he do? Blah, blah, blah. So we get to talking. He's so generous with his time. We ended up talking for like a half an hour. I said, what do you eat, man? What do you, and this was pre-veganism, pre-vegetarianism for me. And he goes on, he said, yeah, dude, I, I just, you know what? I don't even think about it. I said, what do you mean you don't think about it? He said, I don't even really think about it. I'm going to go over to McDonald's after the gym session. I'm going to crush like a quarter pounder, two quarter pounders and chicken McNuggets and a filet of fish and blah, blah, blah. And he's going through it. And my mind was blown at 17 years old of how this human being aesthetically was so in what we consider the pinnacle of masculinity, Right. And the reason I bring this up is because I think that there is a line between aesthetics and health. And I think oftentimes physical aesthetics and health are confused and often seem like they're the same thing. So I think about that story with Reggie because I'm wondering in your experience of being a pro bodybuilder, being a champion bodybuilder, and looking back not only on what you've accomplished, Robert, but all of these hundreds of athletes you know. I think sometimes it's confusing. The reason I bring this up is we see people with the big booties and the six packs and the giant arms, and we assume they're healthy. 
but it's not necessarily true. So I guess I'm bringing this up because I want to separate these two things, aesthetics and looks between health, because I think they're just often conflated in our society. Would you agree with that, that they're two separate things and often confused? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for noticing my booty, too. I appreciate that. Um, It's looking good these days, bro. Yeah, I just turned the other cheek, man. I turned the other cheek, but I appreciate that. Uh, Shout out. I think it's a big line. Absolutely. There's a big line there between aesthetic and health and, you know, like what you look like and and what your internal health is. And Jason, you know this from the bodybuilding world, especially the the pro bodybuilding world, the steroid using bodybuilding world. A lot of those guys don't last very long. You know, I've met a bunch of them over the years that unfortunately passed away in their in their 40s, early 40s, never even made it to age 50. And that's true for pro wrestlers, you know, including Macho Man. You know, he, he had a heart attack while driving a truck, right? And then crashed it into a tree. I just saw a poster the other day, a very sad, very sad poster. It was just, it was almost like you'd see like the Royal Rumble poster with all 30 wrestlers, but this was a poster of all the wrestlers who've died young, prematurely. And it's to everybody, you know, from the Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man and, and just this Kurt Hennig and just, this, you know, Eddie Guerrero for all different reasons. But all these people were like larger than life, you know, big, muscular, you know, they looked aesthetically pleasing, inspiring and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, you're right. Especially in the mainstream diet culture, it doesn't equate to health. I mean, what, what actually comes to mind, my fellow Hooper, is Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom was rumored to be fueled by candy. He like ate candy as a like all-star level NBA basketball player because our, you know, the human body is pretty resilient when you're young. You can do incredible things. I mean, look at a lot of the bodybuilders, NFL football players. You know, they're, they're like fueled by fast food or just heavy meat protein and, and all this stuff. But they work like crazy in the gym, hours on end. They train like crazy. They may take anabolic drugs or growth hormone or steroids or other things to help them in certain ways. But the, yeah, that that doesn't mean it represents health. In fact, if you were to go look at health and fitness muscle magazines from the 90s and early 2000s. Just go flip through the pages of all these advertisements. Many of those athletes are not around anymore. You know, people who representing like a look of health or something that's aspirational, they're not even, they're just not living anymore because of heart attacks, strokes, organ failure, mostly artery clogging diseases. That's kind of the culprit for most of these individuals. And so that's Unfortunately, that's that's running rampant in the uh, you know in the online world as well. And, and of course, you you show a before and after photo and you sell your program. That's just you know the way it goes. And again, you started this topic by saying talking about people making money off their looks or off their appearance. And I don't want to. I, I want to be clear that I'm not criticizing anyone you know for doing that. Whether they use OnlyFans to raise money for themselves, or they do modeling, or they do you know nude photos, or they do posing photos, or flexing photos, or before and after photos, like. Who am I to judge, right? Or who are any of us to judge anybody else for living their life the way they want to live and earning, you know, earning a living the way they they want to earn a living? And actually, the ironic thing is that many people who are critical of that are working for massive, you know, corporations who treat humans, the planet, animals horribly, uh, yet are critical of someone else running their own business and using their body to, you know, to represent themselves in a certain way. So I think it's worth mentioning that. But I also want to point out, Jason, it's it's so wild to me going to these fitness expos that I've been on tour with, with Vegan Strong over the years. I'll just tell you just a couple quick examples because they're a mind-blowing example of the times that we're in. So for example, a recent LA Fit Expo, there was a booth and Lee Haney is there at this booth. Now he is the most decorated Olympia champion in history. Now granted, it's been a little while. He won like in the 80s, 
but he's like you know, like the Michael Jordan. You know, he's the best in bodybuilding's history. Ronnie Coleman tied him with eight Sandow trophies of being the best bodybuilder in the world. So Lee Haney's basically the greatest of all time. You could say he's the GOAT. So he was at this booth and there's nobody there. Nobody knows who he is. Nobody cares. No one's even coming by to say hi to him. And then I see this line that is two or three hours long. Who's this? And it was an Instagram person with like the name Booty in her name. She's just known for her booty. I admit I don't recall her first or last name, but she had people lining up for hours to get a photo with her because she's cool on Instagram. She had 17 million followers at the time. That's, you know, years ago. Again, I don't even remember who she, who she was. And I found, and we noticed that at the Olympia as well, there were famous bodybuilders. I mean, some of the greatest in the game that teamed up. Flex Wheeler, Lee Priest, Branch Warren. These are iconic names in bodybuilding. And they created their supplement line and all that. But right next to them was Bradley Martin, a big time you know, YouTube and Instagram guy. And he had all the attention. And here are these guys with no attention. And it kind of felt like, and this is for you too, Whitney, it was something I could almost relate to. Me, Brendan Brazier, others who are early, no one knows who we are anymore. Again, in a certain sphere, in a certain context, despite the historical things that we've done in the vegan fitness world. And so that was just kind of a tangent on this topic, but it's, but it also, it just paints a picture of the world that we're in right now, that we value certain things and things like getting your photo taken with a famous Instagrammer is like, like that's the new goal for a lot of people that gives you street cred on your page or whatever the case is. And it makes us do things we we wouldn't normally do. And so it's a different world in the fitness game now. And that message is still as confusing as ever, as far as health and aesthetics and not always going together. And especially in the world of bodybuilding where they're, they're just, they're not organically in alignment. They just counter each other really, because the most, you typically, the most ripped you look, the least healthy you are because of the measures you had to take to get there. And so, you know, I had aspirations to be honest of being like my biggest and most ripped ever for this new book launch. And I mean, I got in good shape and trust me, even literally a photo I posted yesterday, I look like, you know, really, really good shape but I'm not where I thought I would be. You know, I thought I like, if I put in all this work and I have worked hard, I'm going to look a certain way. But the reality is we have, I think, and it's part of just an honest conversation is that I'm also in my forties now, you know, I'm I'm not my twenties or thirties. I have a huge amount of stress and workload and burden. And I don't mean to sound like I'm making excuses, but it's, it's painting a picture that other people can hopefully relate to because now I'm recognizing I've been writing books for people who are in their forties, fifties, sixties, who are reading my books for years, but now I can kind of relate to elevated levels of personal responsibility, elevated age, and what comes with that, a different metabolism, just a different type, you know, my body responds differently. And, you know, different environment, different sleep schedule, different, all of these things. And I think it actually, in a way, has helped me relate to my readers more, where I am, I am like a recovering workaholic. I am a retired athlete who is a writer now, a current weightlifter, but I'm not really a current competitive athlete. And that's who's reading our book. You know, that's who picks up the plant-based athlete. It's the active person who's trying to get a little bit more mileage out of their active lifestyle and diet. And that's what I'm doing, where... I have said I'm in some of the best shape I've ever been in, which is true at age 40 or age 41 now, but 
in my head, I still pictured a different type of physique than I currently have at this exact moment talking to you. And I've just kind of reconciled that. I've become okay with that. And it took me a little while to give myself permission to be okay with that without feeling like a failure, like, oh, does my advice even work? Or how come I can't get as ripped as I was as a competitive bodybuilder? And quite frankly, I'm not willing to take those sacrifices now. I'm not willing to spend all that time limiting my food intake or limiting my water intake or doing all this extra cardio. I've got, you know, <laughs> I've got, I've got books to sell to achieve another dream. And so it's just a different context these days. I think it's beautiful that you framed it that way, Robert, because one thing we talked about in a solo episode Whitney and I did was uh, honoring our evolution as people, that our needs, our desires, our dreams evolve as we do, not just in terms of metabolism or our cellular makeup, but certainly our needs, desires, dreams, and wants at you know, 44, 41 are going to be different than they were when they were 21. And I think it's, it's wonderful that you're in this space of acceptance and honoring who you are now, because I think it's easy to get stuck in the past. It's easy to lament what could have been or what came before and certainly honoring where we came from, acknowledging it, but also really being present to what is happening in the moment. I have to sneeze real quick, so I'm going to pause. Pardon me. I kind of wish you hadn't muted yourself, Jason, because... Uh, <laughs> I think, I think we something... start the video with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the opening, the opening scene. And Robert Cheek is back. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and we're allergic to him. Little did we know we are now allergic to Robert. It must be his new laundry detergent. We don't know. I think it's the consecutive Jake the Stink Robert stories. That's unbelievable. <laughs> we, we are repelled by his similar references to Jake the Snake Roberts. Or angry that you didn't put yourself on the cover of your book, your marvelous cheeks, um, <laughs> which maybe that would have made you a best-selling author, Robert. Like the New York Times, like if if it was just a picture of your rear, like <laughs> just like that Instagram girl, you know, you could have a line for hours if you were willing to do that on OnlyFans. But I also, Jason, since you were sneezing with muted, I can insert any sound I want. So I can just like have some cartoon sneezing sounds or like weird sound effects. Can you do like the snarf the, the, or whatever it's called from, from um, Thundercats? No, 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 no. From uh, Grown Ups 2, where it's he sneezes and farts at the same time. And there's like a name for it. He like, you sneeze and fart and he called it like a snart or something like that. It's Kevin 100%. James. It, yeah, Kevin James has this thing and it's, it's kind of recurring throughout the, the movie. You know, like, I think it happens at the end too, where you, it's like a couple other things too. You sneeze and fart and there's something else too. Like you cough, sneeze, fart, and like, it, it's a great combo. You should put that in there. I'm going to. I have to now. Right? We can't. We can't let down anybody. And I'm going to keep Great. it at the end so that people will listen to the whole episode to hear that part. Because <laughs> he sneezed, I think three times. You can have like sneeze fart, sneeze fart, sneeze fart, like on a, on a repeat, where it's like a. <laughs> that can be oh, really good. This is good. This is good. So, final question. Yeah. As we are wrapping this glorious episode, did you get your Oatly stock, Robert? I, I asked him the same thing. <laughs> I texted Robert the day of. <laughs> I did not. I did not even know that was happening. And we actually were recording on a major holiday weekend. I did not even know it was a holiday weekend. I have completely lost concept of time and space and day of the week because of this. What I'm really hoping is kind of my last, I always say it's the last time, but my last effort of this significance that you know, and so I, I'm giving it everything I've got. And so I'm unaware of some things like that. Like I didn't know Oatly was going public. I don't, I don't know some of the things that are going on around me because 
I'm doing what I can to position the biggest thing of my entire life to be as successful as possible, to open up doors for myself and others for the future. And that's really where my mind has been, to be honest. And uh, I look forward to the day where I can I can focus on being a little bit more present. And I certainly was during the writing process when the editor takes two months or three months to edit and I, I do other things. But when you have like a, a timetable and you know the realistic opportunity that you have in front of you, to do something absolutely remarkable, it takes a remarkable effort. Like that's that's what it is. So so no stock for me. I did well with Beyond Meat. Uh, still have some. Sold off a lot and, and made a pretty significant profit there, which can then help promote my new book. So yeah, I'm not on the Oatly shareholder list, but yes. uh, yes. yes, yeah, yeah. And, it, and did you know? Um, I didn't realize this, but there's another uh, vegan stock out there. I think it's Very Good Food Co. or something. Does that ring a bell for either of you? Wait, I didn't are even they, know. Uh, are they on the Canadian stock exchange? Because someone mentioned this company to me, and I didn't think it was the U.S. stock exchange. I thought it was Canadian. I'm, well, did you, I'm did fairly you hear certain. That, did you yeah. hear that our friends at Vegan Essentials got acquired? No. They were acquired by a Canadian company that then went was going public like 10 days later. Well, that might be them because Very Good Food Company, I just looked up, is based in Victoria, Canada. I believe they're on the regular stock exchange under VRYYF, Very Good, I don't know, Very, I guess, VRY. And I don't know what the YF stands for, but... That's not the company. It's so good there's two Ys. Yeah, it makes you ask why. They're not the company that acquired Vegan Essentials, but I don't know what the parent company is that acquired Vegan Essentials. It was Veggie. It's spelled like V-E-J-I-I. I I think it's pronounced Veggie. They acquired Vegan Essentials just a a few weeks ago. And what does that mean for them? Um, Old school company that we've all loved for so long. Yeah. Well, they, you know, I think it was, I think it was time, you know, they've been doing it since the nineties, you know, and they were able to, uh, get acquired. So they're and, done? Are the co-founders out now? Uh, they, they've got a few months left, but then they, yeah. Wow. They, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was talking That's to Ryan. You, you know, I've known Ryan for like 18 years. So we were talking through that over the last few months, the whole thing. So I, I knew it was coming. And then I, I got, I saw the press release and, and he told me the day that the press release came out and it was all over, you know, veg news, whatever, Yahoo finance, everybody was talking about it maybe about a month ago, but, but yeah, that's just another, the plant-based movement is just growing so much in so many different ways, um, especially in the food and beverage sector. I mean, there's like hundreds of millions of dollars being raised for all these different brands. And it's, and so many of them are being acquired and then getting global distribution and the pricing goes down and it's accessible to anyone anywhere in America and many places around the world. So I think there's a lot of positives about the expansion of the plant-based food and beverage industry. Yeah. And it ties into this conversation of just how things shift. You know, part of me is like sad to see vegan essentials change, but I'm also excited to see what that means for the industry. And there's just been so many changes. It's always a bit bittersweet. We've seen Veg News, as you mentioned, change, and now they're better than ever. Like they're just have grown so much. I remember going to their office with you, Robert, when it was like some tiny rundown office on the beach. Yes. Yeah. Way, yeah. Way back in the day. Yeah. It was like a, basically like an apartment kind of thing. Uh, I mean, a a very small, really small setup and that's how so many things start, right? I mean, they, they start so small and then they become something that's a a household name, 
You know, I mean, Field Row started that way with Chef David Lee out of Seattle way back when, you know, Tofurky started that way. Uh, and some of these are still independently owned, of course. Miyoko's, all these great companies, they, Vega, you know, they all started somewhere in someone's garage or someone's basement or someone's, you know, little office they rented. And I like seeing, I like seeing their, their success and seeing uh, what they're able to accomplish and what it means for the movement. You know, there's, there's so many of these images floating around that end up in memes and such where you look at, let's say the, the dairy section in grocery stores where it's, in some cases, it's, it's half non-dairy now. Like you used to have to go to a co-op, a health food grocery co-op store to get soy milk in the unrefrigerated section in a little carton or rice milk. And now you, you go, whether it's the dairy or the beverage or the ice creams or whatever, it's, or, or you go to a mainstream supermarket like Kroger and they have dedicated plant-based meat section. Like it's just a di- completely different world now. And I, I think it's wonderful though, Robert, that you have that perspective because like as someone who did this in the mid nineties, you remember the days of Eden, no disrespect, Eden soy and yeah. tofuti cuties and yes. soya cost cheese. And when, if you wanted something, you were lucky if there was two or three options in that category. Lucky. And you were, and you were paying a lot of money. You had to pay a lot of, you had to pay a premium price for that. I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of it wasn't that good either. Like, no wonder the vegan movement didn't take off in the in the 80s and 90s. It just wasn't that good. <laughs> like, it wasn't. It wasn't. Like, even I was this passionate animal rights guy in the 90s, and I'm like, yeah, mm, pretty good over here. <laughs> you, had, you had to pretend you enjoyed it. <laughs> it, it, it to, to like, I had degree. to pretend that I liked the blocks of follow your heart cheese before they changed formulation. And I was like, yeah, this vegan quesadilla sure is good. But it was like. Like that, Jason, remember that translucent rice milk? It's just like, it's not quite clear like water and it's certainly not white like milk. It's just this kind of silver gray color and the consistency was, it's watery, but there's also some calories in there. You know you're paying for it, but it looks a little funny in your cereal and you're not exactly sure how to take it. Remember that? Of course. I mean, it was just like, and trying to make recipes. I mean, I remember in the early days of like, all right, I'm going to make like a cheese sauce, but it's kind of runny and looks like pond scum and doesn't really taste like cheese. Oh, but there's this thing called nutritional yeast. Oh my God. I mean, just in the 25, 26 years, it is remarkable what has taken place. And it's remarkable what is taking place. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the young bloods out there, y'all don't know these days. Y'all don't know the days of soy cost cheese and Eden soy. And my God, is this ice cream? Is this okay? It's, it says it's ice cream. It's supposed to be ice cream. Okay, we'll go with it. Like the, and I think the depth of that appreciation is so you talk about gratitude, Robert, like looking back on the innocence of those days when we all started. And then now how much has changed? Now we're talking about IPOs and stocks and 50 different kinds of vegan cheeses and 20 different kinds of vegan ice cream. I mean, it's just, it's a glorious time to not only be invested in or be an entrepreneur or to just be living a plant-based lifestyle. I mean, 2021, as we're recording this, my God, it's incredible what is happening. So for all the listeners out there, we want to get Robert on the shareholder list of Oatly. So to do that, this man needs some residual checks. You hear what I'm saying? So buy that book, Get the Plant-Based Athlete, A Game-Changing Approach to Peak Performance with you and our also our good friend, Matt Frazier. We're so, so stoked for both of you, Robert. We absolutely love and adore you. We love and adore Matt. And let's get this man some of those residual checks so he can get those stock options, baby. Okay, we got to do this. Get that cheddar. Get that vegan cheddar. 
Well, thank you. And actually, I was just going to briefly mention the parallels of what we've been talking about. When it comes to books, even in the early days, like my first book, it was like, it was one of the only options out there. And it wasn't that good. I mean, it was okay, or some people might say it's good. But when I really compare it, it's nothing like this. Like this is the grown-up version. This is the 2021 version of the vegan movement. This is hardcover, endorsed by all kinds of amazing people. The content's incredible. Our copy editor described the book as life-changing. Our publisher described it as stunning. Rich Roll says everybody should have it. Rip Esselstyn said, you guys just did an amazing job with this thing. Like this is today's version of vegan food and vegan stock market and vegan IPO. And and, you know, some of my early books, a dec- more than a decade ago, were some of the, the rice dream that you didn't know if it was ice cream or not, or you didn't know what was going on in your cereal because it was the only game in town. And so that's what I'm so excited about is that, you know, a book is out there forever as long as it's in print, but you, you always have the opportunity to come up with the latest version, the newest formulation of Dea that people actually like now. So anyway, I really appreciate you both having me on and you can find it on veganbodybuilding.com. And, you know, of course, you'll, you'll find it everywhere, <laughs> but you can learn more about it on veganbodybuilding.com. But it's on it's in every major bookstore in America and in various countries around the world. And I appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend time with me today. And I always honor and appreciate that. Hear that, Whitney? Always. Always. <laughs> I always. always. <laughs> <laughs> I always. Well, you know what's cool, Robert? Use this amazing website called bookshop.org because it supports local bookstores and you can go on there and see a list of incredible books. I typed in Robert Cheek and the first book that comes up with this plant-based athlete followed by vegan bodybuilding and fitness. Yeah, but I shred it and the plant-based muscle and I'm going to, yeah, it's really cool to see that. I'm going to link to that. That'll shoot it so people can choose where they buy their books from and support some local businesses too. Please do. Please do. Yeah. And it's great to see you on platforms like that, that have made it so easy. And actually the, uh, the vegan bodybuilding and fitness book is on back order. Maybe maybe, maybe it's out of print. (laughs) Maybe the demand is gone. They, They just like stop printing it. I don't know. Well, you said it yourself. You've got the grown-up version, the reformulation. So yeah, you know, yeah, this- you can co- you can collect them all like I did, or you can start with the the newest, latest, and greatest. Yeah, and then maybe one of the older ones will be on Pawn Stars someday. You know, like so. What can I get for this? <laughs> I saw my my book. I looked up, uh, you know, my name to see if I was in some recent article, and and instead I found uh, eBay listings for the vegan ketogenic diet cookbook, and I was like, I don't know if I should take offense to that or if I should think that's cool. But you know, it's also cool about your book, Robert. Is it? It's not only available as hardcover, but Bookshop listed as compact disc and. MP3 CD, very old school. Yeah, we actually, yeah, we have an audio version. It's not us recording it. It's uh, in an actor, but we have audio version. We even have CD version. We have digital version. We have hardcover version. And I wanted to say, Whitney, I actually had twice in one week, twice in one week, two different people email me or even posting publicly that they found my book in a ARC thrift store and Goodwill in my hometown. And so it was like, you know, you talk about your, you know, your books being resold or passed along to somebody else. And they're like, yeah, it's even signed. You know, it's it's already, it already came signed and everything at Goodwill. Uh, So yeah, my books are being recycled a little bit in that way. So the thrift stores love them. So you, you never know where you might find it. 
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.